you know, one of the famous stories is when the Buddha was sitting under his bodhi tree to become enlightened. Uh, I guess it was afterwards, after he was sitting there enjoying the bliss of his enlightenment. I guess it was monsoons and it started raining pretty heavily. And a naga snake came and coiled him, coiled him or herself around the Buddha and, uh, and then put its hood, like a big cobra hood, and kind of um, over his head and kind of like an umbrella to keep him dry for seven days. And, um, and I like this image of the concentric circles of this Naga supporting and, and uh, uh, the Buddha and his practice. And one of the things I'll talk about today is concentric circles. So maybe you can remember this image of the Naga supporting the Buddha. And, um, also the image of the Buddha sending uh, his uh, monks out into the jungle to uh, practice and then running back to the Buddha afraid of the snakes in the jungle. And the, the apparently, as the, as the suttas say, the first occasion for when the Buddha taught about a loving kindness was when these monks came running back scared. And he said, well, you go, guys go back, and, uh, but practice loving kindness towards the snakes. And I don't know what he said. For, I don't know if there was any guarantees, but <laughs> <laughs> they did, and the snakes left them alone. So if you see one of these great snakes <laughs> out in the desert, I think uh, metta is always good. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but it's kind of like, you know, uh, trust God and tie your camel to a post. You know, do metta and walk away. And uh, so I think you all heard about the snake, and it's down there, reportedly down there by the garage down below here. And um, Franz went looking for it and couldn't find it. And <laughs> the many, you, you know the things your managers do for you. And uh, so either kind of, uh, whatever you do, you should be done calmly if you see a snake. Back up calmly, slowly, mindfully. (laughs) (laughs) The mindful part is a little bit extra, as long as you're calm. (laughs) (laughs) But as teachers, we're concerned about the last part. So, um, in thinking about this talk I want to give tonight, um, I had a sentiment or feeling from my uh, Zen training. Uh, In the Zen tradition I studied, there was a sense of care by the teachers and not to want to add anything to our reality, not to add anything to what we had to do or be or become or had to try to attain or anything. And there was a care not to try to add anything to us. And there's this ex- expression they used um, about our own practice saying, don't add a head on top of your head. You know, all this judgments, expectations, trying to do something, become something, attain something, rather than just kind of, in a sense, just being uh, what's actually who you are right now, regardless of how pleasant or unpleasant that might be. Um, and one of the ways that manifested itself in the Zen Center was there was a reluctance uh, by the teachers to speak in the meditation hall. 
usually when they gave Dharma talks, it was what was called the Buddha Hall. And the Zendo was considered to kind of be a place where everybody who was there was a Buddha. And you certainly didn't want to speak to Buddhas, you know, and kind of start giving Dharma talks to Buddhas and telling them what to do. Um, and there was a, a sense of respecting people as Buddhas in the meditation hall and, and not adding anything to the reality. And there was an understanding that sometimes we're, you know, sad Buddhas, sometimes we're happy Buddhas, concentrated Buddhas, scattered Buddhas, depressed Buddhas. But regardless of how we are, we're all Buddhas. And I like this idea, this image a lot, the sense that we can be sad Buddhas, happy Buddhas. As we are, we can see we're, we're Buddha. And there's a kind of an allowance or acceptance that goes into um, uh, just being alive, allowing ourselves to be ourselves. And so in Zen Dharma talks, one of the, in this tradition, one of the ideas behind the Dharma talk, the theory or whatever, was uh, you didn't give anybody any advice uh, about what to do in their practice and, uh, because that's adding something. But rather, the Dharma talk was an expression of appreciation. And uh, you're sharing an appreciation of practice, of the world of awakening, of the world of life and awareness. So maybe you can see today's Dharma talk more as, uh, hopefully, as my expression of appreciation uh, of, of the practice of mindfulness itself, of awareness of life. And, but the topic for today's talk is going to be concentration. And it's a little bit tricky topic, I feel, because um, uh, I've known, I've heard of people giving talks on concentration before, and people getting all tied up around the subject and thinking now they're doing it wrong, or they have to do it differently, or be different, or something, and they have to get concentrated. And that's the last thing I want to do. It's more a talk of appreciation, of recognizing one aspect of the mind, of practice, of of our life, and uh, that side of concentration, about concentration. So I want to talk about concentration from the point of view, as I understand it today, from the point of view of mindfulness practice, how it, how, how it can be done there. Uh, a definition of mindfulness, mindfulness practice, is allowing things to be as they are, allowing all things to be as they are, while remaining consciously aware of what's happening. And you need to have both, both parts. We allow things to be as they are while remaining consciously, consciously aware of what's happening, recognizing in the moment, this is happening, this is happening. And then allowing, giving huge, great, spacious field of allowance to uh, what is going on. A field of allowance. This is a footnote. Um, the uh, Buddha was asked, or the Buddha said, the um, gochara of a practitioner is the four foundations of mindfulness. And gochara is a cow's pasture. The pasture, the field that we roam in is the four foundations of mindfulness. So a field of allowance, allowing the, the cow or the bull or the snake within us to roam around. So then the, then the question, I think, re, uh, reasonably is, um, is that really so? Is that really, um, uh, certainly there must be more than simply allowing things to be the way they are while remaining consciously aware. Um, certainly there must be something more to do here. There's, after all, I didn't just come here to sit in the middle of awareness of what's actually happening right now. I came here to become, and you fill in the blank, you know? <laughs> 
There's a hundred some different answers to that probably here. But some of the classic ones, you know, is, you know, to become enlightened or to become calm or to become peaceful or to become happy or to become more insightful or uh, to come on vacation or... (laughs) Um, Certainly there must be more than simply allowing things to be. However, the the important part of this little definition is uh, while remaining consciously aware. And one of the things I believe we become aware of as we keep doing this practice is how trustable awareness is, how trustable our life can be when we're consciously aware of what's going on in the present moment. And it works partly under the principle that um, we can, for example, we can feel and know that what we're feeling. We can think and we can know what we're thinking. We can have an emotion and know that we're having an emotion. This possibility of knowing what's happening, it, it offers the possibility of freedom, of being free in the midst of what's happening. And it isn't, knowing is not, cog, you know, ruminating about stuff, you know, or thinking about or analyzing. It's very, very simple, matter of fact, automatic almost thing that we do. We know what's happening. And in that ability to know, there's, there is a kind of peace, a kind of spaciousness, a kind of, something happens, maybe almost magical, um, that uh, makes our experience of our life much more trustable than if we're not aware, not cognizant of what's happening in the present. It's as if we have two bodies, as if we have two kinds of breaths, as if we have two uh, lives almost, one that is aware and one that is not. And there's a huge world of difference between a body that has awareness as part of it and a body where there's no awareness. Huge difference between a mind that's aware of what it's thinking and a, and a, and a mind or, or that's not aware of what it's thinking. It's kind of like, maybe the analogy of, of awareness is kind of like when we bring awareness to our life, it's kind of like putting, the same thing as like putting a band-aid over a cut. You know, we can, cu- we can cut ourselves pretty easily. We can even do it intentionally. But it's, generally we don't think of ourselves as intentionally healing our cut. Uh, we have to create the conditions so that something happens, something almost magical happens. And the cut, you know, it's really remarkable what happens to our skin and it grows together and it heals and after a while you might not even see the cut. Uh, and you can't, you know, generally we don't think of ourselves intending or wishing that to happen. However, we have to kind of create the conditions for it to happen. And uh, so we put a band-aid over it and it heals nicely. And I think awareness is kind of like that. We just bring awareness. Oh, this is what's happening now. And it's, it's phenomenally difficult sometimes to be present for the pain of our life. But there's something really special that happens, very trustable that happens, a process that happens. If we simply bring awareness and mindfulness, oh, this is what's happening, oh, and allow it to happen. I used to like the word acceptance as a kind of synonym almost for mindfulness practice. But lately I like the word allowance. Because acceptance uh, lends itself to interpretation of of, um, maybe kind of like condoning it or something. And allow, and also it's kind of maybe more, more mental. Allowance seems to me, at least in my ears, something you do with your whole body. You kind of allow it to be there, um, and doesn't imply condoning it or, you know, justifying it or even liking it or agreeing with it. So a lot of what we're learning, I believe, is we're learning to trust awareness and what unfolds in awareness. 
And some people have told me in this retreat and other retreats, um, the insight or the realization that they had that um, the difficult memories they had of the past, when they realized they were just memories in the present and the event was not actually happening in the present, it was just a memory, it became a lot easier to trust and, and allow oneself to be present in the present with, with, that, with those memories. And, um, just, and they learned, in a sense, that that's trustable to be present, to, be, to allow ourselves to feel and allow if we can stay in the present moment with whatever's happening. So the practice of mindfulness uh, can be divided into three parts, or what the tradition, the Buddhist tradition calls the three trainings, which uh, could be translated into English as kindness, clarity, and insight. Sila, Samadhi, and Panna. And I like kindness as being the first one. Uh, and I like it kind of in sense being the first because I think that's the, the foundation, the beginning of the, of the path of practice, is kindness. Uh, can we to some degree, some modicum of possibility of degree, be kind to ourselves, to our situation, to our experience? And so I, I'm very fond of uh, Chugyam Trungpa's definition of, ma- of meditation when he said, uh, meditation is the continual process of uh, making friends with yourself. And part of the reason I like that is that uh, it's much more, uh, um, it, it doesn't lend itself so much to striving, to getting it right, to having some perfectionist model of what's supposed to be happening. If we think, you know, the point of practice is to become calm or concentrated or insightful, well, then you can measure yourself kind of in an unfriendly way, an unfavorable way. But if the point of the practice is to be friendly, uh, there's no kind of end, you know, perfect way of doing that. You're friendly by being friendly. It's not like, you know, you struggle to get there. Just in the simplest way. So you can ask yourself, are you being kind? Are you being friendly? In being present now, is there kindness and friendliness? in the awareness itself, in our presence, in our relationship to ourselves. And sometimes there's not. And that's okay too. Uh, There's tremendous allowance, allowing things to be as they are. And in that allowing can at least be some friendliness, some sense of allowing, to to our unfriendliness. Some, Some little bit softness about it, some allowance. The practice of Buddhism is a practice to end suffering. And the last thing you want to do is to pick up a Buddhist practice and use the practice as another excuse to create suffering for yourself. You know, I can't, I'm, not, I'm not doing it right, I'm doing it wrong, it's just terrible, and I'll never do it, I'm inadequate in, in light of it. That's, you know, it seems something, something's a little bit, you know, you know forget it then. <laughs> I would say that one of the kindest things we can do is to leave ourselves alone. <laughs> yeah. that, that is, to let ourselves be whatever flavor of Buddhahood, Buddhahood we are at this particular moment, at this particular day. The sad Buddha, the angry Buddha. Not add another head on top of it. But to leave ourselves alone, to allow things to be as they are, uh, is helped by development of clarity. 
So kindness, clarity, and insight. So allowing things to be, allowing things to within the field of awareness, is to include everything in the field of mindfulness. Having no outside. There's no outside in mindfulness practice. There's nothing which is unacceptable as, to, as a f- part of the field of practice. You know, oh, everything but that, you know, the itch, that doesn't count. I just get through that itch, or I get through that knee pain, or, or, you know, my stomach is upset, I ate too much for lunch, so that doesn't count for practice. So I'll just go take a nap and come back when it's settled. You know, or whatever. <laughs> there's, there's nothing which is outside. Everything's included. And that's, only that way is it a practice of freedom, when everything's included within it. So in, in talking about this, uh, it's interesting to uh, use the analogy or the metaphor or whatever of, um, uh, from the Wizard of Oz. Uh, they go into the great uh, Emerald City and, and there's a great Oz, the all-powerful Oz, who uh, is great and majestic and has his great voice and, and pontificates great orders or whatever. And uh, they're all kind of cowering and bowing in front of this great, almighty, huge ego. <laughs> and um, and uh, the only person who doesn't kind of buy into it, I guess, is little Toto. <laughs> so I hope each of you has a little Toto <laughs> in there. You can run up and pull the curtain. And, and uh, Toto pulls the curtain, and there's the great Wizard of Oz. He's a little guy, you know, pulling the levers and talking into a microphone. And, and uh, you know, he's a, I guess he's a bit embarrassed. And they've kind of caught on who he really is. He's not this great almighty. Isn't he from Kansas? <laughs> um, so the question in our practice is, what's behind the curtain for us? Can we pull the curtain and find out what's behind there? And there's a lot of interesting things which are behind the curtain. And in behind the curtain, the idea is, it's not looking for our unconscious. It's really looking, paying attention, including within the field of mindfulness, the pasture of mindfulness, um, including within it um, the things which are there, but we're not noticing. That could be obvious, except we're not, we have a blind spot to them. Now, kind of give you kind of maybe a cute sense of this is we're sitting here, and we're sitting here, and we're quite calm and peaceful, and it's just really something, and the weather is nice, we ate just the amount of, right amount of food for lunch, and, and no one's really making much noise in the hall, and you think this is really great, and, and because of all these conditions are nice, you kind of settle into a nice calm state. And, you, oh, this is, and so you have this wonderful thought, you have this thought, I'm not thinking anything right now. <laughs> and you believe it. <laughs> Something has not been included. (laughs) If we're completely lost in our thoughts, preoccupied in our thoughts, then the curtain is pulled so tight we don't see anything. And what's dangerous about that is if the the curtains are pulled so tight that we don't even know we're even thinking or whatever, then we don't know what the actors are rehearsing behind there. And we can get into trouble. So behind the curtain... Another uh, thing which is behind the curtain is performance anxiety. How well we're doing in the practice, evaluating our practice. The practice is about being present, being with our breath, being with our body, being with sounds, being with our feet when we walk. But it's not about, you know, what's not part of the practice is uh, judging how the practice is going. That's not included. 
And as, lo as long as it's not included, it's there kind of, you know, chatting away in the background, kind of, you know, oh, you didn't do that right, oh, now you're doing that really well, and isn't that really great, and, you know, oh, you know. So all kinds of evalu evaluating the practice of, of, of how it's going. The judging mind is so ingrained in many of us that sometimes it's invisible that it's actually happening. So you remember that attention, awareness, the knowing, and itself never judges. And this is the beautiful part about this principle that we can, we can feel and know we're feeling. Because the knowing itself never judges. And it becomes a kind of a refuge for us, a relief for us when we're judging so much. We're judging, we can know we're judging. And that knowing that we're judging, that's a relief from judging. So there's such things like, I can't do this. I'm unworthy. I'm inadequate for this. Or such things as, I'm really a hotshot yogi. You know, wait until I show them. You know, all kinds of subtle things are going on that are behind the curtain. So we have to learn somehow to pull the curtain and see those also. Include those, not to judge or criticize any of it, but to allow that to be in the field of awareness and see what happens. Intentions can be behind the curtain. Subtle movements of wanting, security or approval or perfection or anything. And we have some purpose or some motivation in our practice, which is not really, we're not really aware of. We might state you know, some beautiful grand intention that you know, you know, the conscious intention and might have some sincerity behind it. But kind of in the background behind the curtains, the stage director is saying, what you really want is you want some security. You know, just give me some security or some, give me some, some uh, sense of, you know, that I'm really special or some whatever. And so we the, the kind of nudge, our practice is nudged along by these more subtle intentions of um, um, trying to do it right for someone else. And none of this is wrong, as Tara said, said so beautifully last night. Um, but the possibility exists that we can know it, we can be aware of it. And in that, allow the natural process of perhaps healing or perhaps whatever happens to happen. Another thing that's behind the curtain is our restlessness. Restless is the end of sitting, for example. Um, I, sometimes I sit up here and 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 I'm supposed to look at the watch, you know, occasionally, open my eyes and look. And, but when I do that, sometimes I notice other people are kind of going. <laughs> and hoping no one notices. And they're not really doing it, right? So it's kind of like, you know, if you're going to look at your watch at the, near the end of the sitting, you should do it like a good Zen student. Just really do it. The Zen and the art of looking at your watch. Don't kind of sneak exactly. <laughs> you know, let it. <laughs> no excuses. <laughs> But there's this way in which, at the end, sometimes of sitting, we're kind of restless. And the restlessness kind of takes over, and we don't really, really know it even. And so we start doing things that we kind of don't even know, because it's not included as part of the practice. Everything is part of the pra practice. The hindrances are classics. That's why they're hindrances, is because they're such, so clever at keeping, them sides, keeping themselves off stage behind the curtains. And um, if, we, if they were kind of more public, they wouldn't be a problem but they have a way of kind of camouflaging themselves. And so it takes a little bit more familiarity and to, get, uh, to develop the strength of perception to notice them when they arise. So it's beginning to maybe get some sense a little bit 
of the unacknowledged assumptions, tendencies, needs, biases that are the directors and stage managers behind the curtain. So clarity is beginning to include everything within the circle, everything within the field. Clarity comes from allowing things to be while being consciously aware of what's happening. It's the beautiful, like, like the beautiful example we all know of the pond that settles. If you allow all things to be while being consciously aware, it gives a chance for the pond to settle, to clear out. To the degree in which there's stage managers and directors behind the curtains directing the show, their job is to steer the waters up. And then the third training, so uh, kindness, clarity, and insight. The third one, insight, wisdom. Many things can be said about this, but um, it's maybe one of the ways of talking about it is seeing the transparency, the, the ephemeral nature of all the concepts we cling to. And we only cling to concepts. And to see how, you know, it's so ethereal, what we think is so real and we hold on to for dear life, or we push away as it's so important to push away from. The example, uh, maybe it's, I don't know if it's a good example, but I like telling it. Um, <laughs> is um, I, I, I don't hallucinate, you know, usually, not at all, <laughs> except once. Um, I was a, a new Zen student uh, within a few short time of being a new Zen student. And I sat down, Zen, this tradition of Zen, you sat facing the wall, and you can't sit with your eyes open. And this particular place, the wall was about, you know, right by my knees. It wasn't, you know, really close by. And this, um, I sat down, and immediately this huge Roman, majestic Roman column roll up, rose up in front of me. And written down the column was the words in great kind of Roman letters, Z-E-N. <laughs> you know, like, like the bank, you know. Like <laughs> solid and majestic and real. And, and the next thing, I don't know where the hallucination stopped and reality kicked in, but... Uh, the next thing I know, I went to embrace this great column of Zen, <laughs> at which point the column disappeared, and I fell forward and hit my head against the wall. <laughs> and you know, I'm kind of slow, but that caught my attention. And, uh, and I realized how much I had put Zen up on a pedestal, in a sense, as this great thing that I was going to study and become the great perfect Zen student and whatever. And, and Zen was something outside of me to become. And when, when you're trying to become something outside of yourself, like a perfect whatever, you're not allowing yourself to be as you are. And, and Buddhist practice is to study the self, is to learn about oneself, to be oneself. And in that, then, being sensitive to the world around us. Another example is, um, you know, Vipassana Romance at Barry, a three-month course. I like calling them uh, Vipassana, uh, not Vipassana romances and Vipassana vendettas, but virtual romances, <laughs> <laughs> virtual vendettas. And this is a good example. I was, uh, you know, so there was this, you know, nice woman. <laughs> you know, and she seemed like, you know, a nice American woman. And, and, you know, and I thought, well, you know, and it wasn't like, an, you know, I wasn't obsessing. But if <laughs> I have a sense they don't believe me. <laughs> but you know, it would kind of swim through my... Three months is a long time, right? It was kind of... <laughs> but, you know, occasionally kind of pop its head and swim through, you know. 
And I had a whole story about you know who this woman was and what it'd be like to be with her and talk with her and go on vacation with her and <laughs> and on it went. So then it was integration week at the end, and we had a chance to um, ask you know to ask talk you know and ask questions. <laughs> and she asked a question in the hall, and she was a foreigner, and she had this really thick accent. And suddenly, my whole virtual reality disappeared like that. Because my whole reality was built on the fact that she was an American. <laughs> and what all that meant and everything, you know. And suddenly, I realized I didn't, I didn't have a clue who she was. And it was all just made up. So insight is to begin seeing through the stories which we live in. All the stories we live in. So. Um, I'm, fa I'm still fascinated. I, I've said this a few times. Some of you have heard this from me, but I'm still completely on awe of our thinking mind. If anybody else went around and kind of talked to me in my ears as much as I talk to myself, it, I would, you know, I'd be begging them to shut up. I would, <laughs> at, my, at my most polite, <laughs> constantly talking away, you know. And, and, and not only that, if they were as repetitive as I was. <laughs> I would be going bananas. <laughs> but th what's fascinating is I never get tired. <laughs> it's, it's as interesting as if it's the first time. <laughs> so why? <laughs> and I suspect it has a lot to do that we so strongly identify with this wor world of our thoughts. And, we, and our identity, who we are and who we should be and how we're supposed to represent ourselves to ourselves and represent ourselves to others and how we measure ourselves against others and standards or whatever, is so important for us. And we do all this with our thoughts. And so it doesn't matter if it's 500 times you've had the same thought. It still grabs us the same way. It's like the first time. It's all transparent. It's all ephemeral. It's just, you know, what is it? What are these thoughts that we so get caught up in? So part of mindfulness is to begin seeing through uh, our attachments, our preoccupations with the world of concepts and thoughts and stories. Not to, not to disrespect them, not to have, they have their place and their importance in our life, and um, not to discount them, but not to be the slave of them, not to be, um, you know, runner, you know pulled around by the nose by them, uh, but simply to see them what they are, just thoughts. Our, our involvement or our relationship to them are optional. And I didn't know that until I started practicing. I thought I had to believe everyone. <laughs> so one of the useful qualities of mind which supports mindfulness practice, which supports the development of kindness, clarity, and insight, is concentration. The opposite of concentration is, uh, dis is distracted attention or distracted presence, being distracted, divided attention. And someone said, we can, we, are, we can be so distracted from our distract, we can be distracted from our distractions by our distractions. We don't even know where we are, what's going on. We're so lost in this world of distractions, our thoughts. 
when attention is divided between different things, then um, our vital energy, our vital attention, uh, gets dispersed. And it's all too easy to become overly excited, fatigued, inattentive, restless, and bored. And so partly what concentration is, it's not something you really, you know, some great focus of mind. It's simply uh, having an, uh, an attention which is not completely fragmented and divided in many different directions. This was in the San Francisco newspaper a couple of weeks ago. Cellular phones are a big status symbol in Chile. But when the local police stopped 49 motorists for using them while driving in a wealthy suburb, they found that about a third of the phones were fake. (laughs) (laughs) The point is, after all, to look important. The editors of the local paper that carried the story said they did not know whether the fine for using a fake phone is lower than using a real one. Should be. One-way dialogue is less distracting. (laughs) I argue the opposite. They should increase the fine. Because if you're you're driving and talking on the phone, you can say you're doing two things at once. If you're driving and talking on the phone and pretending, you're doing three things at once. (laughs) So double the fine. So undivided attention or concentration I like to think of it as being a byproduct of practice and not something we're supposed to cultivate and try to get so much. Um, and it just it comes when we do the mindfulness practice. And it comes when we do... And there's several things that support the arising of concentration. One of them is continuity of practice. Maintaining the best continuity as you can, as is appropriate for your given situation as you are today. Maintaining as much continuity as you can. And we interrupt the continuity by talking, for example. And uh, if you carry on a long conversation uh, in the middle of a retreat, you can really feel how it interrupts the, con- the, the continuity and how you suddenly find yourself scattered or fragmented. Or um, Not that that's wrong. It's fine to be scattered and fragmented. Um, we allow all things to be <laughs> while being consciously aware of how it is. But anyway, the byproduct of concentration is, is, comes with continuity. It comes with care, having care both in the sense of careful attention and the sense of compassionate care for what's happening in the present moment for ourselves. It comes from silence. Just being silent itself for 10 days develops, whether you know it or not, develops a degree of concentration and calm. Steadiness of attention, steadiness of intention, having an intention and following through with it steadily you decide to go get tea. Follow through on that one intention and don't kind of think, well, maybe I'll go out to the bathroom and maybe I'll go back to my room and you know, do this or maybe I should do this you know, and kind of get distracted along the way. But in a very simple kind of, not making too big a deal of it, having a steadiness of intention of following through on one thing while you're doing it, while you're here. Um, that supports the de- rising of concentration. Stillness of body supports the rising of concentration. Um, and you don't have to be sit still, uh, but it's nice to sit still and it allows the, the, the development of concentration. Simplicity supports concentration. Being as simple as you can uh, with the activity you do here. 
see if you can radically simplify what you do. Uh, you know, the simpler your life is on a retreat, the easier it is for this concentration to arise by itself, without you even trying to. And the tradition gives lots of other th- uh, things to do to kind of support the arising of concentration. Uh, one of them is to um, uh, 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 keep yourself uh, clean. Cleanliness supports concentration. But in the context of mindfulness practice, I like to think that concentration arises from the ground up. And mindfulness practice is a practice that's done from the ground up. And what from the ground up means is we start from where we are. We don't use mindfulness as a technique to get somewhere else, because if you're going to get somewhere else, you're not here. Here is where it's at. And if you're trying to get somewhere else, you miss the boat. It's all about here. And so we start here, what's actually happening here? And c- can we allow it to be in this way? Or if it's difficult to allow it to be, can we at least be enough here to recognize what's going on, to have wise attention, wise discernment about how to, what, to, what to do next, to have metta or um, you know, go for a walk and take a break or whatever it might be. But we start from the ground up, which means we start actually where we're at. What's happening right now? And in talking about this, I like to uh, use the word concentric, concentric circles. And it seems concentric is very closely connected to the word con- concentration. And to think of the practice as uh, involving uh, four different concentric circles that, uh, that is part of the pasture, part of the field. And the widest circle, the widest naga, snake, is just the very simple, direct, matter-of-fact recognizing and perhaps allowing of what is happening right now. Um, And believe it or not, that's enough. Just simply, this is what's happening. I've noticed myself sometimes a tendency to think, well, I'm supposed to kind of follow my breath and get concentrated or get settled. And I don't notice that I'm really sad. Or I notice that I'm really filled with certain sensations in my body. And I kind of miss that's really what's going on because I'm really trying to do the practice right. So the first thing is very simple. What's happening now? That's all you need to do. What's happening? So you come to sit here. What's happening? What is happening? And then is, can there be a sense of allowing, allowing what's happening to be there? Allowing yourself to be as you are. That's a great place to start your practice. And I, I invite you to start that place, just wherever you happen to be. Um, sometimes it's difficult to recognize what's happening, what primarily is happening in our experience. And one of the cues, one of the suggestions, you know, that maybe you're missing, not noticing what's happening, is uh, frustration in the practice. If you feel really frustrated or feel a lot of resistance, Sometimes you should take a wider lens and kind of look around and see, am I missing something here that's important? So, for example, if I think I'm supposed to be following my breath, and really what's happening is my knee hurts, and the knee's, you know, d- asking for my attention, and I have this, you know, stubborn idea I'm supposed to stay with my breath, my attention is, is then, you know, struggling. There's a tension between, you know, trying to stay with the breath and, trying, and wanting to stay with my, the pain. And that manifests itself as frustration. If I let go of trying to stay with my breath, at least that frustration, you know, doesn't have to be there. And it's a little bit easier to be in the present moment. 
So the widest circle is simply to, ex to recognize what's happening. And then you can use your, 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 your wise discernment of what to do next. Sometimes it's appropriate to do loving-kindness practice. Sometimes it might be appropriate to do just listening, just listening or whatever. Sometimes it's appropriate to come in closer to what's actually happening, to be more intimate, to explore it. So anyway, so it's the widest circle is to recognize. The second innermost circle is, the second outermost circle, next one in, is um, the gathering together of body, mind, and intention. And what, if you look up in the dictionary, one of the definitions of concentration is to, to gather together. And I like this a lot because if you, you, I think the idea we have in meditation sometimes that concentration is a one-pointed focus, which sometimes it can be, but um, in the context of mindfulness, I think it's more this gathering together, collectiveness, collecting of our whole being into this where we're at right now. If we're sitting here in the hall practicing and we're thinking about the lunch we had today, then our body is in one place and our mind is somewhere else. And what we want to try to do as we come into this inner circle is to try to make our physical and mental experience to come together in the same place. And you have a choice. You can either and just let go of the thoughts of lunch, if they're kind of mild, and come back and really kind of be in your body, be here fully, so your mind and your awareness and your body is here. Or if the, you're obsessing about the food, totally obsessing and it's really strong, then drop into the physical experience of obsessing. Be in the present moment with obsessing, because if you're obsessing, you'll feel it in your body, what that's like energetically, you'll feel you know, tightness or tension or energy or fragmentation or something in your body. So you can come together. You don't, have to, you don't have to reject the obsessive thoughts. You can allow it to be, but you can come into the present moment by coming into the body of it, what's happening in the body. And then the body is not a story. So the story is what, ye what keeps us from yielding to our body, softening into our body, embodying our body. But as we can kind of find what's happening in our body, it's a way of beginning to soften the story, not being so caught by it. So to bring together not only the body and the mind here, but also our intention. What is our intention in the present moment? Is the intention to kind of be here with the breath, to be here with sounds, to be here as we walk? Or is the intention to plan menus? Um, it's your choice. But then whatever it is, get your life energy behind it. It doesn't mean you have to kind of act it out and kind of, it doesn't mean you indulge in it, but really find a way to be present for whatever it is so that all those three come together in the present moment in a kind of allowing sense so you're not in cross purposes with yourself you know you're really trying to you know follow your breath and really what you want to do is pay attention to the fact that you're sad or you're happy hey, one of the things that amazes me is I can sit down with all the wonderful, sincere, deep, profound intention, I'd make James very happy. <laughs> and even sit here and even make this sense, you know, here I am, I recognize my intention, I stayed at the beginning of sitting, it's ready to go. And I start thinking about the pizza I'm going to order at the end of the retreat. <laughs> you know, completely trivial. What's the relationship between this completely trivial pizza ordering and this intention? Why do I kind of 
I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, so that <laughs> So it's to arrive here, it's to bring our body and our mind and our intention together. And for most of us, the primary thing that's useful is to come into our body, to embody our body. What about this body you have? Is it a body that you have? Do you have a body or are you a body? Is it the body you have or is it the body you are? Is there a shift of your sense of presence depending on how you see it? If you close your eyes for a moment, just as you are. Some of you, I'm sure, have all kinds of ideas and thoughts about your body. It's too big, it's too small, it's too bald, it's too short, the nose is too perfect, it's, it's beautiful face, I have a terrible face, my lips are too fat. You know, just think about how you think about your body, your concepts you have about it. Each of you have your own many thoughts. And then take a deep breath or two and let go of that. And now, what is your body's experience of itself? What is the body's experience of itself? Not what you think of the body, but when you give the chance for the awareness of the body to arise within the body itself. How does the body experience itself? Okay, you can open your eyes. And what I hope is that, that you see a huge contrast between being in the world of concepts and thoughts and just being in the body's experience of itself. resting in our body. I'm fond, uh, so okay, the word, uh, the Sanskrit or Pali word for concentration is samadhi. And which usually, the, um, but samadhi, the, the root of the word, sam, is the same, exactly the same root in English, uh, the, uh, prefix in English as khan, like, which means with, like compassion, with passion. Um, concentration with center. The D part of samadhi means to stand or to pose. So a more literal translation of samadhi is composure. And I like that a lot, this idea of bringing together the mind, the body, and the intention. It, because composure is a physical event. It's a holistic event. It's not something you do with a laser focus of the mind, watching what's going on or whatever. You compose yourself in the midst of your experience with your body, with your intention, with your mind, with your whole being. So the next this circle, you know, you recognize what's happening. And based on your recognition of what's happening, there can be, a, okay, I'm going to compose myself on what's happening, or maybe on something else if you want. But you bring the circles in, and you compose yourself here in the body and the mind, what's happening now? So you decide to compose yourself on the breath. It isn't simply that you watch the breath up in your head, but you compose yourself on the breath, you relax into the breath, you allow the breath to breathe itself. In the Satipatthana Sutta it says, 
allow the breath, uh, feel or experience the breath within the breath. Know the body within the body. What is the breath's experience of itself? When the body experiences experiences itself, I think there's often a kind of sense of much larger sense of self, larger sense of presence, than if we're just living in our thoughts of who we are, thoughts of what's happening. Uh, And I think this is what the Buddha had in mind, partly when he gave the metaphor of the salt. If you take a, a teaspoon of salt and put it in a glass of water, the glass becomes undrinkable, perhaps. There's enough salt. You take the tablespoon of salt and you put it into um, Lake Tahoe. Or into, you know, you can drink it. The water's, you know, doesn't the salt doesn't affect it. When we become our experience, when we experience, when we have the body's experience of whatever is happening, I think there's a much wider sense pool within which to experience our difficulties and troubles. It's a lot easier. So we're listening, if that's what we want to do, if that's the intention, that's primarily what's happening. Can you listen with your whole body? Or as they say sometimes in Zen, um, see with your ears and listen with your eyes. But listen with your whole body. Let the whole body be part of the, part, the antenna for listening. If thoughts are what's happening predominantly, feel what those predominant thoughts feel like in the body. Composure. Another uh, idea of composure is, or this, you know, with, a, with taking a stand, is that, to take a stand. And sometimes it's appropriate in practice to take a stand. And it's part of what concentration is, to take a stand. This is where I'm going to take my stand, make my stand. And there's times when it is appropriate to be quite firm in the practice and say, this is where I'm going to be, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to let, you know, have a strong, te- notice you, have, you might notice that you have a strong tendency to just kind of float around casually and let the mind kind of lead you around and thinking about pizza today and sherbet tomorrow or, you know, next moment and just, and you're kind of very allowing of it all, but it's not really allowing yourself to really settle on yourself in a way. So you want to take a stand. And you say, no, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay with my breath. I'm going to stay with the schedule and not waver. And sometimes that's appropriate to take a stand. The third circle, so the first is recognizing. The second is bringing together body, mind, and intention. And the third is um, then sustaining the awareness. Once the mind, the body is together, is to sustain that connection, sustain the, the connection between awareness and the body, awareness and our experience. Sustain the attention through time. Sustain the attention with some aspect of what's going. So it can be with the breath, sustaining the attention with the, with the breath. It can be a physical pain, sustaining the attention with the pain. It can be with an emotion, sustaining the attention with the emotion, with sound, sustaining it to the sounds as they happen. Um, 
And a big, uh, useful aspect to this is to have interest. It's a lot easier to sustain attention uh, if there's some interest in what's happening. Yeah. Sustain, giving our caring presence to what to what we are, to what's actually happening in the present moment. Not letting our stray thoughts lead us off, but to kind of take a stand and sustain the attention. And you notice the thoughts come, and not to let themselves, not not to let them go very far, and come back and be, this is where I'm going to be. I'm going to be here with this breath. I'm going to be here in this body. I'm going to be here with this walking period, these steps as they walk. To be interested, what is this breath? What is this experience? What is this feeling? Then the fourth uh, concentric circle is when the sustained attention gets stronger, and more continuous, is to have a penetrating focus and un- to develop unwavering clarity about what's going on in the present moment, what we're experiencing, and how we, re- how we relate to it, how we're experiencing and how we, how we relate to it. Are we relating to it with openness and kindness? Are we relating to it with greed or pushing away or desire or whatever? To see what our relationship to it is. Is there clinging? Is there suffering in relationship to it? To penetrate the experience, to penetrate the concepts of what's going on and begin resting in the direct experience. To see the impermanent nature, how things arise and pass. To see how all experiences are not really a place to hang our hat. Not really a place to, to, that it can provide lasting satisfa- satisfaction or lasting identification, lasting identity. If all our experiences are impermanent, how well can they provide us with a lasting identity? is to begin seeing the process of how things unfold in the present moment. So rather than fixating on what's happening at the present moment, is to sustain the attention to see how things move and change and how they process themselves. And to see that in presence, there's no need to cling to anything. And to develop the tremendous trust to allow things to be as they are, while remaining consciously aware and nothing else. And the point of practice is not to be any of these places. It can sound like, oh, Gil just kind of described kind of a sequence, linear sequence, you know. You recognize what you, where you are, then you're in your body, and then you're sustaining the attention, and then you have this penetrating focus, and then it's great. That's not the point at all. The point is to allow things to be the way they are while remaining consciously aware of what's happening. And what will happen is anything might happen. (laughs) And you might follow this sequence I described. Great. Then you get proud. I did what Gil said. That's not allowing things to be. Or you follow them two or three steps and then you bounce back and you're totally scattered. That's fine too. The practice is can you allow that to be while being consciously aware? So we allow the change and the unfolding and the disturbances and whatever happens. And what we're developing is not some particular state, not some particular place of being, not some particular strength of mindfulness. We're, we're, we're developing the flexibility to allow things to be as they change. And if you're co- totally confused and scattered and everything's chaos, 
The practice is simply to recognize chaos and confusion. That's what's happening. Confusion is happening. Wow. Maybe that's just a huge, you know, wide outer circle. Confusion. Okay, recognize the confusion. And then, what does confusion feel like in my body? Oh, it feels like all this energy moving around and backwards and forwards. Oh, that's interesting. Energy. Where is that energy? Oh, it's primarily in my torso, in my chest. And then you sustain, you sustain your attention in your chest. And then you see what happens. So you kind of see an example of how this works. But the point is not for it to work. <laughs> the point is simply to allow whatever is happening. And so the, um, in the Zen training I got, It was really great. You know, you'd be a gung-ho Zen student and you're sitting in the meditation hall in Zendo and you feel like you're on the cusp of enlightenment. This is the moment. It's just any moment now it's going to happen. It's just really great. And just, just let me sit here a little bit longer in silence and don't disturb me. And they come and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, we need someone to work in the kitchen today. What do you mean? Wait a minute. <laughs> Don't you understand? It's really important what's about to happen. I'm about to get enlightened. It's really great, you know, or great insight, or I'm really concentrated, or whatever. But no, please come and work in the kitchen. And over and over again, the Zen monastic training, the training itself, the life of the monastery, didn't allow the students to get attached to anything. And maybe they didn't get as enlightened as they could have been. <laughs> but they sure became easygoing. <laughs> Allowing things to be as they are. Maybe that's the point after all. And I want to end with this quote. Thomas Merton writes, Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths where neither sin nor desire can reach, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we can see each other that way, there would be no reason for war, for hatred, for cruelty. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. So to see ourselves as Buddhas, and to see ourselves how a Buddha would see us. We are all Buddhas, and within each of us is this tremendous beauty, tremendous beauty and nobility. So pull a few curtains and see what you find. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.